episode 20 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Women's Bible Study. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and new guest panelist, Alexis Neal. Say hi, everybody. Hi. Hello. Welcome, our, uh, our panelists today. Frequent listeners will obviously recognize Victoria and possibly also uh, know me, but Alexis is, like I said, a new guest panelist here at the CFP. So we're going to briefly introduce ourselves and then we're going to learn a little bit more about her. So Victoria, you go first. Thanks, Katie. Uh, as Katie said, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, if you've listened to the show, I'm sure you've heard more of me than maybe you've wanted to. So I'll keep this brief. Uh, I am an adjunct professor of English and sociology at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Um, I have a degree in Renaissance drama and gender studies. I teach English composition, English literature, and social science classes. Uh, and currently, I am very excited about spring break, which is the week after next, because I will get to leave the Minnesota tundra and spend four days on a cruise in the Bahamas. So that is uh, my exciting, happy thing for right now. That's awesome. So, so envious. We're going to be here in Kansas, which could be warm or it could be frigid. You just never know for our spring break. Um, I'm Katie Grubbs, as I said before, and I live in McPherson, Kansas, where um, until very recently I was a professor of English at Central Christian College and was in charge of the writing center there. Since the beginning of the spring semester of this year, I've actually been taking some time off because we had a second child. So um, my husband, David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and I have uh, two children, one almost three, and then a new baby who is three months old. So I'm taking a little bit of time off from teaching, but am uh, definitely enjoying still working on my dissertation through the University of Georgia in Renaissance Lit. And I'm hoping to make some really, really good progress on that this summertime um, as we, you know, have the nice break in our school year that allows for a little bit more of that. So um, let's go ahead and meet Alexis and hear a little bit about her. Thanks, Katie. Um, uh, as uh, Katie pointed out, I'm Alexis Neal. <clears throat> uh, up until about a year and a half ago, I was a government attorney in Washington, D.C., and uh, then about a year and a half ago, my husband and I relocated to southwest Missouri, where we are currently living. Um, I am now an adjunct professor at Southwest Baptist University, where I teach uh, various law-related classes that they happen to, to need a teacher for. Uh, but most of my time I spend with my ridiculously entertaining nine-month-old son. Uh, so that's most of how I'm spending my time these days. Lots of primary colored plastic objects and lots of um, silly songs and repeated readings uh, of certain children's books ad nauseum is most of my, most of my activities these days. Thanks, Alexis. And uh, I think uh, 
you and I are in the same place on a lot of days, probably given the, uh, all the baby stuff. And it's definitely something different than, uh, at least than I had done uh, up to the, up to this point in my life. So, um, thank you so much, uh, for introducing yourself and we are excited to welcome Alexis to the podcast for the first time today. Okay. And listeners, before we move on to this week's main topic, we did want to actually respond to a listener email. We received uh, a very thoughtful uh, response from listener Steve Zelt, who had some concerns and some questions about uh, terminology, about the kind of lexicon that we use when speaking on the Christian Feminist Podcast. And I'm going to um, toss this over to Victoria to give a little bit of a summary of some of the things that he brought up, and then we're going to give a little response. So go ahead, Victoria. Uh, first of all, I want to just reiterate what Katie said about Steve's wonderful, thoughtful message. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing here because it is quite long, um, and I, I did respond um, in in text. I sent an email back, but I want to say on air to as many people who are listening, um, this message was touching and thoughtful and respectful, and it just really, um, be, because this show is such a labor of love for us, it really touched me to think that someone is not only listening to my voice at all when there are so many choices out there that are I'm sure better uh for you to take up your time with but um just taking the time to think really deeply about the things that we're talking about and and be measured and considerate I just I really appreciated that so thanks Steve I think you're great um so just a little bit about the content of Steve's email um, he's responding specifically to something that, uh, that we said that actually I said, um, in the recent episode on male feminist allies, um, he talks about something I say about Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, quote, doing it right by learning the lingo and history of feminism and referring to feminism in terms that feminists might use to describe themselves. Um, he says that I said that's how we're supposed to do it, we as in academics, to, to use the terminology of, uh, of the other side. Um, he says he thinks that's about respect, um, about common ground and ethos, um, and then asks if, um, if that kind of idea is applied equally across the board. Um, he says, I'm thinking about the LGBTQ folks and the phrase gay marriage. At the moment, I don't use that last phrase without scare quotes around it. Verbally, I preface the phrase with so-called. I make it clear that I distance myself from that terminology, that I'm using it merely as a convention and not a conviction. And to be honest, I avoid using LGBTQ too. I simply say people who are attracted to others of the same sex. Um, then he goes on to say, for me to indiscriminately use the phrase gay marriage is to de facto acknowledge that there is such a thing. As a Christian, I can't admit to that. For me to use that phrase is to enter willingly and foolishly into a rhetorical card game that plays with a marked deck. Um, I get the feeling that whatever Christian words I use after I enter that game will no longer mean what I mean um, or what the Christian community means. And then he goes on to ask... Um, what does it mean that certain groups are expected to use the language of certain other groups? For example, Christians expected to use um, terms accepted by the queer community, but that the opposite is generally not true. So a lot of really, I think, deep, interesting questions. Um, and I, I'm not sure I have a lot of definite answers. Um, 
I did want to clarify that I think that the jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt example is a little bit different than the gay marriage example because um, I feel like JGL is working from a place of membership. He is a man who wants to be considered a part of feminism, so he works to use those words to be accepted by that group. Um, so I, I don't think that the language... Um, is is doing exactly the same thing in both examples. Um, but I do think that Steve is asking really interesting questions about um, privilege and, and who gets to use, uh, who is marginalized, who gets to use privileged terms um, if, if those, if that switch happens, you know, if, if one group is expected to do the same to the other as they want to have done to them. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I think that because privilege is so intersectional that you kind of can't really say gay people are marginalized and Christians are privileged, period, or or the opposite, or uh, gay people are privileged culturally and Christians are marginalized. I think both things are true in both cases, so the language switch is, to me, a little bit more difficult. Um, Do you ladies have thoughts on this? You know, ever since we got this email. I've been trying to think my way through it. And it it is very, very difficult. And I do think that any, any, you know, any scholar or any person who, you know, kind of gives lots of thought to language would agree that terminology does matter. We can't say, oh, you know, it it doesn't have ideological weight for me to use the same terms as a group I disagree with, or, you know, it's fine, whatever, we'll just all use the same words. Um, Because I do think that Steve makes a great point that, continually using the terminology uh, of a of a certain group does tend to indicate affiliation with um said group sometimes not always and and it is it's hard to know like we were discussing earlier in the episode thinking about um you know how you know victoria said like are we too christian for the feminist are we too feminist for the christians that whole kind of tension it also encompasses terminology. So is there a way, I mean, you know, uh, should we try to be looking for a way to introduce the kind of feminist lexicon, introduce terms that are used, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, try, try to put it out there that there are absolutely people who identify as, you know, Christian, um, usually uh, on the more conservative end, who don't honor those terms or who might not use those same terms, or if they did, might not mean them in the same way. It's hard to kind of ride that line and to, you know, kind of hold that intention, you know, of trying to use terms in a way that is a neutral. I don't know. I think it's it's incredibly difficult. And also it's worth saying that it's not just a Christians versus the secular world thing or feminist versus non-feminist thing. I mean in any in within any given group there are still going to be disagreements about terminology. You know, there are I mean there's lots of disagreement about what feminist should mean among feminists or you know what um who Christians would term Christian even within their own group. So it, it's it's a difficult thing all around and I think that the, the the points that Steve made are, are interesting, but you're absolutely right, Victoria, that I think it's made me have made me think through more questions necessarily than answers. You know, so we'll have to maybe continue that conversation. I know we, uh, the three of us, discussed before recording tonight that you could probably have a whole, whole part or several on that very same idea. So thank you so much for for writing in, Steve, and with those uh, Steve with those thought provoking questions. We really appreciated it. 
Yeah, definitely. And listeners, um, if, if you like this idea of a whole episode about um, the politics of language or about um, who uses what terminology and why, um, shoot us an email. Let us know how you think we should focus that kind of discussion. Um, if, if this is a discussion that you guys think is um, is worth having um, in more depth, we would love to do that. Um, but we would like to, if you're interested in that, have you help shape what it looks like. So please, if that sounds cool, write in, tell us how you think we should do it. To move on to our our topic this week, we're discussing women's Bible studies. And I have to admit that my desire to discuss this topic and uh, to moderate this discussion first kind of stemmed from frustration with maybe some Bible study experiences in my own life. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, about our personal experiences with the topic in a little bit. But uh, before we start, I wanted to clarify that when we say women's Bible studies, we are meaning both groups of women meeting to study the Bible together and then also actual Bible study curricula. Um, that are targeted at women. So both the, the, the meeting and also the product, Bible studies, uh, women's Bible studies as products a little bit. Um, and that's uh, another name that's sometimes used for this same concept is ladies' Bible studies, which is a term that we're probably going to touch on a little bit later. But I'd like to start this week by each of us just sharing a little bit of our personal backgrounds and experiences with women's Bible study, just so that listeners can understand where we're coming from in this discussion. So um, we're going to go ahead and start with uh, with Victoria and then move on to Alexis. So go ahead, B. Okay. Yes, uh, Katie, like you, I have had um, some positive and negative experiences. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that, like, the phrase women's Bible study kind of puts a bad taste in my mouth. Um, I, I do think of um, the kinds of things that Sarah Bessie talks about in Jesus Feminist. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some of her responses to women's ministry in a blog post in a minute. But um, in Jesus Feminist, she talks about um, pink Bibles with flowers on the cover and, and things like that. Um, this idea that, like, in order for a Bible study to be for women, um, you kind of have to add um, frilly things, frivolous things. It's, it's less serious. It's less theologically dense. Um, so I, I do think of those things. Um, most of my corporate women's Bible study experiences have been, um, have been positive if, if a little too frilly for my personal taste. Um, one women's Bible study that I really enjoyed was one that I did at um, at Central Presbyterian Church in Athens, the church that Michael and I got married in. Um, and it's a study I did while we were engaged, which um, wasn't really a book study for women. It was just a study attended by women, and we went through um, that Five Love Languages book together. Um, and what was really cool about um, the experience for me was that I was by, I think, a pretty wide margin, the youngest woman in the study. Um, you know, I was engaged and starry-eyed and excited and planning a wedding and all of those sort of fluffy things. Um, and there were women who have been married for decades who gave me a lot of perspective and food for thought and experience about how to navigate a relationship. Um, and I, I still think about some of the wisdom that I, that I gained from that experience. So while I, I do have a kind of negative view 
of the subgenre in general because of some events that I've been to that were, um, to, to quote the Bessie piece again that we'll talk about soon, uh, baking cupcakes for Jesus, then, uh, then serious study. Um, I, I have had some positive experiences too. Thanks so much. Um, Alexis, what about you? Um, well, I, I probably should have mentioned this in the, the introduction. I've grown up in the church my whole life. So I've, I've been in Bible studies, I think, on and off for the past 20 years. Um, and I think like, like Victoria, I would say um, my experiences have largely been good, um, even as I've been aware of some less than appealing um, studies and materials sort of operating around me. I just always gave a really wide berth to anything that involved the color pink or anything frilly. Um, so in general, my experiences have been really good, particularly where, as Victoria again pointed out, there was a certain amount of diversity in the demographic of uh, the women gathered together. Uh, in uh, in Washington, D.C., we had a lot of young professional women. Uh, we had single women. We had married women. We had some, some older women as well. Uh, really a lot of different life stages. Uh, and so learning how how the Lord was working in their life stages, what they were learning, um, what struggles they were having was really helpful, even if sometimes um, the material wasn't the most academically rigorous. Um, I think the best experiences I've had have been when we have used curricula that was not specifically designed for women. Um, uh, again, partly because I've drifted away from that in general, but I've tended to like studies that were just studies for Christians um, that then were performed by a women's group. Uh, in particular, uh, you'd asked for potential recommendations of that. Uh, Jerry Bridges has a number of books, and I've always appreciated his blend of uh, sort of meaty theology with accessible style. Uh, so it's it's a lot to digest, but but you really can digest it. Um, so his his works have been particularly helpful, but by and large my experiences have been positive, uh, even though some of that is, I know, due to self-selection on my part um, and, and sort of avoiding uh, things that seemed lacking in substance or overly feminine in focus. Thanks so much. Uh, and, and I'll kind of round it out by saying that, you know, um, I alluded at the beginning of, of the episode to having had some frustrating experiences with Bible studies in the past. And a lot of that actually very recently, you know, I, I kind of started, you know, single gender, I guess, Bible study in maybe high school, you know, meeting with friends or and also in college. And then when I was living uh, in Athens, Georgia, when my husband and I were in grad school there, I didn't actually ever go to a ladies Bible study because at least at the churches we went to um, then they tended to happen on weekday mornings. It was kind of almost a not rule specific. I mean, they weren't only targeting those Bible studies to moms who were at home or, you know, women who worked part-time who could be there in the morning. But because that's when those things happened and I was always teaching or in class during the day, I just wasn't able to go. And so I was actually um, very excited when we first moved to Kansas that the ladies Bible study happening in our current church, at least at that point in time, happened at night. So I was actually able to go. And that was kind of the first time I was in um, had been in a, a corporate kind of ladies Bible study setting in a long time. And it, and I definitely can echo a lot of the stuff that, that you guys are saying about the helpfulness of mixed generations in Bible study. I remember looking around at one point, uh, the first year we lived here in Kansas at Bible study and realizing that of the probably 20 ladies in the room, women in the room, I think 12 were grandmothers. Um, I was uh, like Victoria said, I was the youngest by far. 
the only one, at least at that time, who was attending who, you know, was pregnant. And there were very few people in our church at that point who even had small children. So there was a huge generational gap, which did sometimes um, and, you know, did sometimes lead me to maybe feel a little bit reluctant to say some things in Bible study because I didn't want to be perceived as someone who was too young or who so who might not have a lot to say on a topic. But I think that my frustrations in the past in the Bible study area have actually been much more to do with the curricula than with than with the composition or with the ways that the group met. I did I have always found great, great helpfulness in multi-generational, you know, groups of women studying the Bible and in having the insight, having the perspective of women in different stages of life and, and in the same stage of life as well. But it's I tend to get frustrated with the studies to the point where I think I might have said this to you, Victoria, at some point, but I can't remember. I know I said it to my husband, but I came home frustrated one day, one night from Bible City and basically said something like that. I wondered if being an academic had just completely ruined me for any kind of of women's Bible study. And I hated feeling that way because I didn't want to get into a prideful place of going to Bible study and feeling like, oh, I'm above it all. But I was just coming home from Bible study time after time frustrated because I felt like it was either too light and fluffy, you know, like the Bessie piece talks about. Um, it wasn't intellectually rigorous or it would have lots and lots of homework, lots and lots of, of Bible to read, but would still often engage in kind of proof texting, uh, pulling Bible verses out of their proper context or perspectives, uh, historical perspectives and making them mean very woman specific things, um, for lack of a better word. Also, a lot of um, at least one of the studies that I've done in the recent past had a very much of a, a kind of shaming quality to it. And I don't know if that's specific to women's Bible studies, but I feel like it might be because I think women in general, tend, we tend to be hard on ourselves. But there would be lots of questions about how exactly are you, well are you doing in this area in your life and name three different ways that you can improve right now. And it was all very performance-based in a way that was worry, worrying to me. And so kind of coming out of those frustrations, uh, with different Bible study curricula made me want to talk about this and talk about, you know, are there uh, ways of studying the Bible, women's Bible studies that do get it right um, or that, you know, transcend the gender specific stuff. So um, I think that it's it's actually been really great for me to think about this, too, because I've had the experience in the very recent past of getting to teach a Bible study lesson for the first time. Uh, our church this year, our Ladies Bible Study has been fantastic because this year, instead of doing a kind of pre-made study that we all just went on online and bought, whatever, had sent to us, instead, we've been doing a kind of basics of theology series so that each week, whichever woman is teaching is addressing a topic like, what is prayer? What does the Bible teach us that prayer is? Who is the Father? Who is the Son? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to... Um, to take the sacraments, things like that. So it's just getting back to the basics of really good systematic theology. And I was, had the wonderful experience of being asked to teach the lesson on what is the Holy Spirit, which was hugely humbling and um, drove me to so much research in part because I'm an academic, but also just because I was a little bit scared to death to get in front of women, some of whom have known Jesus for 40 more years than I have, like Victoria talked about before, and talked to them about here's what the Holy Spirit is. So getting ready to teach my very first lesson has really made me also interested in just the idea of women's Bible study. And that was very, very long, um, but hopefully listeners uh, are bearing with me today. 
so the next thing that we kind of want to talk through, having gone through our own kind of personal stuff in our section of knowing this time, is um, Victoria's going to talk for just a little bit about some theories about gendered ways of reading the Bible as related to, to women's Bible study. So go ahead, Victoria. Okay, so first, um, a, a caveat, now that Katie has talked about being nervous, uh, engaging with theological matters, um, I, I am not a theologian, I am not trained in that area, um, I'm trying to learn things, I, uh, when, when you suggested, Katie, that I address this topic in the knowing section, um, I started to try to tackle it from a theological angle and read um, kind of theology of gendered epistemology, gendered knowing. Um, I'm not qualified to do that. I, I didn't feel like I was grasping what I read um, in a meaningful way. So um, apologies for that, listeners, but I feel like it's best to be honest about it. So um, if, if you know of theological um, texts on gendered epistemology that would be a good introduction for me, please pass them along. Um, until then, I'm going to talk about what I know. Um, so two, two related issues that I'd like to address, one that's a little heavier on the feminist side and one that's a little heavy on the, heavier on the Christian side, though I think both um, have uh, applications to both of the identifications we work in here at the CFP. Uh, so first, I want to talk a little bit about feminist standpoint epistemology. Uh, epistemology is, as I'm sure most of you listeners know, uh, the study of knowing, how we know what we know. Really simply, feminist standpoint epistemology is a theory that says um, we are limited by our individual perspectives. We're boxed in by them um, based on our personal experiences, how we're raised, the ways in which we're privileged and marginalized, those kinds of things. And that that limiting can be a good, positive thing because it can show us our biases. It can push us to um, listen to people with different perspectives than us before we speak. Um, I, I, as I said, sometimes get kind of frustrated with the idea of reading the Bible as a woman. Sometimes I feel like that can be fluffy and limiting. Um, but I think that thinking about feminist standpoint epistemology and applying that to um, something like reading the Bible is a good way to work on living intersectionally as a Christian feminist. I know we've talked about other times on this show that um, sometimes it feels like uh, we're too Christian for the feminists and we're too feminist for the Christians and we're not satisfying anybody and we're doing everything badly. Um, I think acknowledging the perspective that we come from and, and kind of starting there and learning from that is a good way to, um, to feel a little bit less guilty, to take some pressure off ourselves and maybe to, to work a little bit more honestly. So that's my first thing. Um, and the second thing I'd like to address is the idea of gendered language in biblical translations. Um, this is a, a contentious issue and one that I'm certainly not going to um, endeavor to solve, but I, I am going to uh, give some thoughts. So um, two really kind of broad general camps um, one that says translations like the new NIV are um, good for women because they're inclusive and representational and women can see themselves um, in more inclusive language like 
Um, for example, uh, instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, something like um, Father, Mother, God, instead of Father, God, things like that. More inclusive language, language that either takes away gender or includes both male and female gendered language together. So the pro-argument says representation is good for women. Seeing themselves in sacred texts makes them feel good. The con argument says um, that the idea of representation being necessary or mandatory is in itself patronizing. That why do women, you know, need to be present in their uh, sacred texts all the time to feel included by them? That thinking that they do is sort of saying, like oh, you simple women can't understand anything that you don't see yourselves in. So um, I've been thinking about those two viewpoints um, and can really kind of see a little bit of positivity, um, see something good about both of them. So I wanted to pitch that to you guys and ask you, um, what are your thoughts about this issue of um, gendered Bible translation or inclusive Bible translation? Have you used... Um, translations that are or aren't inclusive, what do you think about them? That's a really great question. And and quickly before I answer it, also, thank you so much for tackling the, these ideas, Victoria, because I know it is a really tough thing. And the gender epistemology is a, is a complex issue to talk about. Regarding your question, I think that I would probably lean more towards the latter viewpoint of it maybe seeming a little patronizing uh, to, to feel like, oh, a woman can't connect with scripture unless you know, she feels like she's being connected with on every page and in every way. But I do also have to say, confess that I'm, I'm a dedicated devotee of the New American Standard Bible because I prefer my translations word for word, even more than phrase by phrase. So I also tend to be enough of a, I guess, a, a stickler for word for word translation that I think I would feel very strange reading a translation that had been deliberately um, made to be more gender neutral like that, if that's not necessarily what was reflected in whichever original language it was coming out of. So I think it's an interesting idea. I don't know that I would be completely on board with it. What do you think, Alexis? Um, yeah, I think I would agree with you, Katie, um, not least because often there are uh, reasons for the word choice that um, go beyond just the representation of a particular gender. I know uh, in at least one of the New Testament accounts um, where there's a reference to being sons of God, um, I've heard um, uh, preaching on this topic that talks about the, the, the importance of choosing sons because of their ability to inherit. Uh, and so the idea was not just a child, but a child who inherits. And so I think you actually, like in that case, you would lose something by just saying, oh, a child of God or sons or daughters of God, that they're specifically saying in this context where there are children who don't inherit and there are children who do, you are a child who does. Uh, so I think often there may be there may be things either that we don't know yet or are still learning about what the reasons are for the word choice, uh, why the Holy Spirit inspired that particular word choice. Uh, and I would feel more comfortable trusting women to be able to discern uh, when a, a masculine gender uh, noun or pronoun is inclusive of uh, their gender as well and, and when it's not. I think we can determine that through a careful study. And I'd rather do that than make the change in the translation and lose out on any additional meaning. Thanks, guys. So another uh, couple more things that we wanted to kind of think about as we're uh, 
thinking about knowing about women's Bible study. And one that Alexis is going to talk about now is we're just going to cover a little bit of some of the ways that women's Bible study curricula specifically as products are, are commonly um, targeted or, or formatted or themed. And so Alexis is going to take that now and, and give us a little bit of grounding in that area. Thanks, Katie. Yeah, I, uh, based on my research, it seems like the, the question of formatting uh, sort of breaks down into two different questions. Um, one is whether you want to do a lecture-based or a discussion-based format or some combination of the two. Um, and, and I'll start with that. Uh, it looks like discussion-based uh, format is much more common, partly because it is usually easier to formulate discussion questions and facilitate a discussion than it is to create a lecture whole cloth. Um, so I think a lot of groups, because they are led by lay leaders um, prefer the idea of, of taking someone else's content, uh, like a book that someone else wrote, and, and facilitating a discussion of that content, sometimes even using discussion questions provided with the content itself. Um, so that seems to be by far the more common, although some... Um, some curricula also includes a lecture component. You can get DVDs or audio recordings of particular teachers uh, presenting their material. So you could potentially pop in a DVD, listen to someone talk, uh, and then have the discussion if you wanted to have that lecture uh, component, even if you didn't have someone in your local church who had the time or potentially um, the, the capability to generate and um, to deliver a, a lecture. So that's sort of the first uh, question that you have to answer in deciding what format you want to use. Uh, the other format sort of bleeds into the question of themes, but it is whether you want to have a more topical study uh, or whether you want to have it be text-based. Not that there isn't a textual component to a topical study, something like what does the Bible say about how we use our words, um, but rather saying uh, a study of 1 Corinthians, uh, where you're not picking any topic, you're just taking a chunk of text and studying whatever topics the text itself raises. Um, by and large, from what I have seen, uh, women's studies are almost exclusively topical um, and, and particularly topical um, focused on topics that are seen as appealing to women. Um, obvious ones would be things like parenting, sex, marriage, self-esteem, food issues, relationships in general, um, fear, inadequacy, self-doubt, things like this. Uh, these are the kinds of topics that are most common uh, from what I've seen in women's Bible study curricula. Um, Interestingly, there is sort of an attempt to uh, occupy a middle ground. There are a lot of studies that are about a specific person in the Bible. Um, so they're not, you know, on the book of Second Samuel, but they are on maybe um, Saul or David or Gideon or Jonah, someone like that. Um, and so they won't quite be fully uh, text-based in the sense of just starting with a chunk of text and expositing it or studying it. Um, but they will be a little bit more um, in that direction rather than purely topical. Uh, I think this is actually really interesting because it, it, it seems like it could be a manifestation of the idea of women being relational, uh, that it's easier for women to access scripture if they're given a person that they can get to know, and that's sort of their access point for the Bible. So rather than studying uh, 1 Corinthians or you know 2 Kings or something, we, we pick a particular person and we learn about that, that person, and it's like getting to know another person. Uh, and, and so I think it's really interesting that that is, if there is a more strictly um, uh, textual basis for, for the study, it is almost always a person. 
Um, so I think that that's uh, particularly interesting with regards to the themes. Um, in addition to sort of the format question and the theme question, uh, I was looking at who some of the major players are because uh, there are a lot of sort of big names that that pop up with the, the, the production and creation of this um, women's Bible study curricula. Uh, two of the biggest names that I've seen are Beth Moore and Priscilla Shearer. Um, interestingly, in the small town that we live in, both of them have been featured in what's called a simulcast uh, at larger churches in the area, where apparently the churches purchase uh, the right to stream or, or, or broadcast uh, recording. I guess it's a live streaming uh, of Priscilla or of Beth Moore. Um, uh, doing whatever Bible study they happen to be leading. And uh, I looked into this, and, and interestingly, you don't have any information when you purchase a simulcast um, as to what the material will be. You are just purchasing the Beth Moore simulcast, and whatever she happens to be talking about is what you get. Uh, and so the churches don't market it as Beth Moore talking about David or or Jesus or anything like that. Uh, they just have to, to market it as uh, Beth Moore or Priscilla Shearer or whoever um, talking, which I think it's a little disturbing uh, in some ways because it sort of moves in the direction of that cult of personality where the person matters more than the content. So that was, uh, I thought, very interesting. Uh, a couple other names that are less active in sort of the national speaking circuit but who publish a lot of books in intended to be used in women's Bible studies um, would be Kay Arthur, uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss, Lisa Turkhurst, and then, uh, depending on whether how you feel about her inclusion, uh, Joyce Meyer. Um, None of these women, including Beth Moore and Priscilla Shearer, hold any kind of a pastoral position, but all of them um, do have some kind of teaching platform in addition to the writing. Uh, Beth Moore and Priscilla Shearer, as I said, uh, do these simulcasts and, and conferences and speaking, um, but the other women I mentioned each have their own radio platforms. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that the biggest names out there, that I'm aware of anyway, um, all also have a, a way to actually um, verbally, orally, uh, in an audio format, present their teaching, um, even if they don't um, have uh, the simulcasts or have a, a pulpit that they regularly present their uh, content from. Thank you so much, Alexis. That's actually a really, really awesome uh, and succinct way of hitting all the major points. I know I've done personally done at least one Nancy Lee DeMoss study in the past in uh, at church. And I know there's a book, she has a book on forgiveness that um, people have recommended many times in my hearing at church. And so these are definitely names that we hear a lot. And one thing um, that I think one connection between what Alexis just said and what we're about to move forward to into as well is that a lot of the Beth Moore stuff or Priscilla Shear, some of the big names, well, there will be Bible study curricula written, but then also a lot of times those um, the, the writings from some of those same women teachers might also be used in other contexts in kind of larger women's ministry, not just in specifically Bible study. I also want to, at, moving forward, talk a little bit about how it's very, very difficult to separate any discussion of women's Bible study from a larger discussion of ladies' ministry in general, because so often those things are intertwined. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. And I think uh, one of the first reasons is that so often Bible study targeted to women overlaps with either just kind of social time, like talking with other women, social, um, social interaction and, and, or also often food. Um, I know my ladies Bible study that I currently go to happens at 9am and we have absolutely had cheesecake at Bible study, despite it being 9am. Um, that's just something that happens. There's always food 
There's, you know, often um, talk time built in, time for prayer requests, even at the Bible study, time for connection. And I think that's one reason it's hard to separate out women's ministry at large from Bible study is because so things get together. Um, and, and it's not always the social time even invading the Bible study because it also goes the other way. So, for example, our church every year has ladies' Christmas coffee. That's what it's called. And everybody comes. We have coffee and we have cheesecake and people dress up pretty. But that is kind of billed as more of a social event. But then there's always usually a speaker. And often the talk that's being given is explicitly kind of Bible teaching so that one of the best Bible lessons I ever heard full of historical context and great um, perspective on the time period when, you know, it originally happened was at one of these ladies' Christmas coffees, not at Bible study. So, you know, it's very much a kind of swirl effect of Bible study intertwining with lots of other things. And um, as Alexis mentioned, this is the other reason I think it's hard to separate those two things, is that authors of Bible studies for women also frequently will either sponsor or provide and create content for women's retreats and other kinds of events that aren't just Bible study, so that it all kind of gets mixed up together. And um, that's one reason that the first the first thing that we are going to um, discuss here in our reading section is Victoria is actually going to talk about a Sarah Bessie piece that is written about women's ministry in general, but speaks to some of the same issues with Bible study that we're discussing. And um, Victoria and I are each going to talk about an article in this section that kind of talks about problems in this area. And then Alexis is going to give us um, a little bit of information about a new book that kind of offers one Bible teacher's um, opinions about maybe ways that it can go better um, in terms of Bible study. So I'm going to go ahead and let Victoria talk about um, a, a great Sarah Bessie article. So uh, Sarah Bessie is a blogger, uh, Christian speaker, writer, personality uh, from Canada. On episode 7.2 last year, we discussed her book, Jesus Feminist, which came out in 2013. Um, and the article I'm going to talk about is a post on her blog, sarahbessie.com, um, which is titled, In Which I Write a Letter to Women's Ministry. Um, I think it's probably important to point out that if you look at that blog, um, there's a picture in the header of the Dana Carvey SNL church lady um, caricature, which, which gives you some idea as to kind of her attitude about what women's ministry does wrong. Um, I'm just going to read a, a couple of lines that I think summarize her main point. Dear Women's Ministry, the world can give me cute cupcake designs and decorating tips, scrapbooking parties, casserole recipes, and other ways to pass time in the first world. Jesus is coming, so let's all look busy. But truly, with respect and love, may I be honest? If I wanted to learn how to decorate cupcakes, I would take a class in it. If I wanted to be educated on strategies for decorating my home inexpensively from Winners, I would just, you know, go to Winners or Pinterest. But I'm here with you tonight because I want what the world cannot give me. Uh, and then later down the page, we're hungry for authenticity and vulnerability, not churchified life hacks from lady magazines. So she says, um, you know, th this is vapid. This is, um, not only a negative kind of shallow vision of Christianity, but on top of that, a shallow vision of what it means uh, to to be a woman. Um, 
much less, you know, not a lot of effort at, at putting the two together in any kind of meaningful way. Um, so I, I really like this blog post. It resonated a lot with me. Um, I've definitely been to some events that are more about um, hospitality and cookie baking um, and about these things being important to womanhood um, under the guise of Christianity and less about like actually praying and talking and studying the Bible um, and, and engaging on a deeper level. So I, I do really... Um, think that she's touching on a lot of kind of painful truth there. Um, when I was prepping for the episode, though, I found a really interesting reply um, from a woman named Rebecca Halton. Um, it's on her blog, and it is called uh, An Open Letter from Women's Ministry to Sarah Bessie. Um, and Halton's criticism is basically that Bessie is too divisive, that she doesn't meet women where they are. She kind of judges um, surface-level things and doesn't realize that there are women who, you know, maybe their gift is they're really freaking awesome at baking cupcakes, and that is how they're serving the Lord. Um, She doesn't sort of see anything other than the cupcakes and and judges too harshly. So I I think that both um, blog posts make really interesting points, and we'll link to both in the show notes. Thanks. And I also think, too, I wonder sometimes how much of the the various preferences people might have for what happens at women's ministry events. Some of that, that stuff, I think, could also be generational. I know um, it was very interesting for me to be in our new church in Kansas and to be of a different generation from probably 75% of the other women in our church um, so that I was noticing that the kind of events that, that were happening at our church were so, so different um, and maybe in, in a lot of ways a lot more traditional than the kinds of things that I would go to for women at our church in Athens in a big university town in a, a church population that trended much, much younger. So that instead of having, you know, back at, you know, Redeemer Prez in Athens, women's ministry game night probably might have included some cocktails. I feel like maybe cocktails were involved, board games, and it was all very informal, you know, whereas at our, you know, our church in Kansas and our tiny town here, there's usually China involved at ladies events, um, tiny China cups with tea. And, um, it's a, it's a lot more formal. No, I think it's no less satisfying and people are still connecting in a real way, but it is a very different atmosphere. And I think that Maybe some of that is what Bessie's reacting to, too, is a kind of different generational ideas of what does it mean for women to get together and relate to each other in a Christ-like way. Um, Alexis, what did you think about anything on on that topic? Um, Well, I, uh, like Victoria, very much uh, agreed with Bessie's overall point. I I will say, as someone who can be slow to warm up to new people uh, and who can be a little bit more restrained with strangers— I appreciate the the fluffy events uh, as a way to familiarize myself with uh, with new faces, um, and I think that can be helpful for those who are new to a particular local church or even new to the church in, in general. I, I attended one women's event uh, not not too long ago where I, I arrived there in a room full of strangers and was instructed to share some deeply personal things with the person next to me who I had literally never met before, and as far as I knew, who wasn't a Christian, may or may not have been trustworthy. 
Um, and it was just, it was way too much too quickly, at least for me. And I don't think that I was alone. Um, so I think that, that those get together and make something, do something, serve the church, uh, work in the flower bed. I've, I've done a little bit of quilting with a, an older ladies group in town that's been very beneficial, not as a substitute for women's Bible study and not uh, the sort of robust kind of fellowship that ultimately I hope to achieve, but a very useful stepping stone to make it easier for me to transition into that more intimate and transparent uh, fellowship and community that Bessie's talking about. So I think as long as we keep those things, uh, their, their place in mind as a stepping stone and aren't just satisfied with stopping there, uh, they can have a very useful purpose. Um, but ultimately, we do want to have the, the transparency and the, the intimacy and connection with one another that comes from a more, uh, more rigorous and, and just more personal um, an honest uh, interaction. Yeah, thanks so much. And I and I was also going to ask you guys at this point because I think a, a term like this probably does get all over um, Sarah Bessie. I don't. I mean, she, I don't know that she mentioned it in the blog post, but I did want to just for a minute here talk about the term "ladies' Bible study" as opposed to "women's Bible study" because I know I in this very podcast I'm sure have used them interchangeably. Um, though I do think that there is a little bit of a problem with the term "ladies' Bible study" because I, I do think it can, um, you know, kind of project a little bit that church lady image. Victoria talked about Sarah Bessie using the church lady um, as an image for that blog post. And I think that that's actually kind of apt because I think particularly ladies Bible study versus women's Bible study kind of has this projects maybe an image of perfection or decorum rather than um, authenticity so that it's, oh, we're being good ladies, you know, uh, per, uh, perfect ladies as opposed to real women. And I, I didn't know if you guys felt the same way, but I wondered if, if you guys had any, any preference for women's Bible study over ladies Bible study, or if it felt like either term was problematic. Uh, that That's something that I, I probably haven't really considered deep enough um, uh, until we were starting to prep this show. Um, but it, it did make me sort of check myself a little bit. Um, listeners who've been listening to the show, um, for a long time have probably picked up on the fact that when I moderate my preferred uh, greeting terminology, I always say hi, ladies, or hello, ladies, because um, it just feels casual to me. Um, also, I'm from the South, and, and that is a uh, you know a word that we use a lot. Um, it's, it's also me trying not to say the word girls. Um, because we're not oh, girls, sure, we're sure, women, yeah. and and to me, ladies can sometimes um, sub in as a, a, a more kind of casual uh, form. I mean, it would sound really weird and stilted if I said hello, women. That's strange. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right about the sort of kind of shellacked, polished connotation of the word too. So I'm I'm gonna maybe uh, think more about my standard greeting. Maybe it'll be different next time. Alexis, how about you? Anything? Uh, I, again, I'm, I'm sort of on the same page with Victoria. I use it all the time. Um, and I, I've kind of seen it used sort of ironically where there might be like a ladies bowling night or a ladies. So the juxtaposition of that uh, more prim and proper ladies uh, uh, term with something that's not stereotypically feminine. Um, so I don't tend to have a lot of connection with it one way or the other. As far as I'm concerned, they can be interchangeable. Uh, again, as Victoria said, the, the, the girls, I think, is a little bit more problematic. I don't always hate it, but I do think you have to be careful um, using it too much. Uh, but ladies doesn't really bother me one way or the other. 
And I do think Victoria's absolutely right that it is um, also regional because absolutely, uh, you know, I think that it was probably every single day of my undergrad experience, our RA probably when she came on the hall said something like, hey, ladies, it was just, you know, happened all the time. And so it does come out a, a lot, too. But I did. Um, it was interesting just to think about the rhetorical implications of of choosing ladies versus women and most of the time i don't think people are even trying to do anything or say anything in particular with that but um thanks for your thoughts on that though and uh the other the other kind of two pieces we wanted to talk about in this reading section one i'm going to talk about now just briefly because i want alexis to have time to talk about um uh jen wilkins book women of the word here in a little bit but i did want to talk about um one other post that today that we were looking at, which was written by Sharon Hodmiller for Christianity Today. And it is called What Happens When We See Women Teach the Bible. And this is actually touching on the kind of big tent, Beth Moore, famous women's teachers, famous women teaching the Bible issue. And what Miller is arguing in this piece, which came out um, just very recently in January, 2015 is um, she kind of is, is making the argument. Oh, and before I go on, let me just say quickly before I forget. So um, Sharon Miller is a writer um, for various publications online. She's also a PhD student at Trinity Evangelical and got her master's from Duke Divinity School and uh, had served as a college minister in the past and um, now is is uh, a writer on topics of, uh, of faith. But she talks in the article about being a young woman, a college-aged woman, and not really knowing what to do with her gifts or where her call to the ministry would be found until she went to a passion conference for college students and heard Beth Moore speak. And she talks about this as a kind of turning point in her life because she had never seen a woman with that kind of platform teaching the Bible and not just and not just being there in a token kind of woman way, but teaching the Bible well, teaching the Bible in a way that was powerful and um, to her uh, and excellent. And so it even led her to, in her PhD studies, to do research on and interview other women to ask them, you know, what about what encouraged them to study the Bible or to teach the Bible and um, led to her kind of studying the impact of mentors or of, sorry, of role models, role models in life and women seeing other women teaching the Bible in a very public way as a way to realize that they could do it too. And I thought it was a, a really, really interesting idea. And I think a really important point because, you know, the Bible says that older women should teach younger women. That, that verse gets trotted out all the time, um, from Titus two, I believe. And, um, okay. Thank you, Victoria. I, I, as I said it, I knew it was right, but I had a momentary doubt because it was coming out of my mouth and I wanted to make sure it was correct. But Titus two always gets trotted out. Older women need to teach the younger women. And that's, that's great and that's fine, but where the, the problems start to creep in a little bit is, is that not every um, not every woman who is even gifted for teaching is necessarily going to know how, or even um, particularly women, I think, in churches that are of the complementarian bent are not necessarily even going to know that it's possible, and not, not because women don't teach at all in complementarian churches. Women do teach other women, absolutely, even if there's not a woman pastor up at the front every Sunday, but particularly in, in kind of complementarian churches where a, a young woman is not going to see 
women pastors up at the front every Sunday, young women in those churches might not realize, hey, I could teach the Bible. I, you know, I could be teaching other women. I could, you know, this is a place where I could use my gifts. And so I thought that was a, a really interesting argument that it's necessary for young women to see women teach the Bible, to be able to know that it's possible and know that, um, that that's something that, that women are gifted to do and can do it in different avenues, depending on their context. And she also talks about that too, about different contexts, uh, for different types of women that even if you have a woman in a complementarian church or, um, you know, in a more conservative environment, that there are still avenues where she could use her teaching gifts. So it was a very interesting piece. And I think speaks to the value also of, some of the more kind of, even though it's not as personal to go to the Passion Conference with a million people and see Beth Moore teach there, or, you know, it might not, might feel really impersonal to view a simulcast and not even to be in the same physical space as the woman teacher that you're watching. But just to see that that is something that is happening and that is impactful and and so huge could be beneficial. And um, I I wondered if you guys had ever, um, if there were any particular teachers that you had kind of seen in your life or who maybe had um, showed you that women could teach the Bible and teach it well and excellently. You know, I'm not sure if I have, um, have examples of that. And I feel kind of sad that I'm drawing a blank right now. And I'm very sorry that I didn't actually warn you guys that I might ask that question, by the way. It's hard for me to give anyone in the more distant past when I was kind of the age that Miller talks about her first seeing a great, a great Bible teacher or person that she was, you know, um, really impacted by. But I will say I did have that experience fairly recently in the last year or so when we had, I think ladies Christmas coffee, but, um, a woman came, um, Shirley came to speak. Who's a, who's a Bible teacher at grace Bible church, which is our mother church. Cause we go to a, a church plant, you know, so we're like a tiny church plant here in our town and our mother church is grace Bible church, but they sent one of their women's Bible teachers to, to do our ladies Christmas coffee. And that, that talk completely rocked me. I hadn't, because I hadn't experienced anything with that kind of scholarly rigor um, in a Bible study that I had done, you know, anytime really ever. And this was one less, she managed to put so much into one lesson on one idea on one passage for ladies Christmas coffee. And that just completely blew my mind. And it made me want to be able to do that. Um, you know, cause I teach all the time. I teach college students and we teach about English and I teach about writing and that's what I'm good at. But it made me want to learn to teach the Bible well to in case I ever was asked to do so. And I, you know, that was kind of huge for me, but I, you know, I, I didn't know if you guys had had similar experiences or not. Well, I, uh, again, uh, like you, Katie, it wasn't necessarily uh, in sort of the formative years of my life, but um, I've been really impressed with a, a conference that's put on by the gospel coalition. It's called the gospel coalition women's conference. Um, and they have a mixed group of speakers, some uh, sort of big name male speakers, but then they also um, um, have a lot of uh, female speakers who are at the, both the plenary sessions and at the breakouts and, and smaller sessions, um, which is, is great because it is a, a the Gospel Coalition is a complementarian organization. Um, so these are women that that uh, are not necessarily involved in in some of the uh, the speaking circuits or may not be um, as familiar to a lot of folks. And I have been just incredibly impressed by the caliber of the of the of the women who have spoken um, at the conference, in particular, uh, 
Paige Benton Brown, um, I think is just phenomenal um, as a teacher and a speaker. Um, Wilkin, Jen Wilkin, who we'll talk about in a minute, she actually teaches at that conference as well. Uh, but there, there's a whole assortment of women who teach there. Um, and so that's been a great source for me of uh, uh, women who share my theological viewpoint, who are able to uh, have a platform for speaking and teaching and setting a great example to other women of what it looks like to teach the Bible. I've actually read a good bit about the TGC Women's Conference, but one thing I, I think that I remember um, being impressed by reading about the last women's conference that they did is that it um, explicitly uh, was not topical. And in fact, the last one that they did was actually about Nehemiah, which is not a book that you often hear done, particularly in women's Bible study curricula. So I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, and uh, Alexis mentions Jen Wilkin, and that actually moves us on to the last, our last item that we're going to discuss this evening in our reading section, and that is that Alexis is going to brief us on a fairly new book, um, came out in uh, 2014, I believe, called, um, and it's Jen Wilkin's Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds, and is going to kind of pose an interesting uh, response to some of the problems we've been talking about. So Alexis, go ahead. Um, yeah, so this book isn't necessarily um, targeting women's Bible study as the sort of the group that meets or or even the, the curricula that's used. It's specifically saying how should women study the Bible. So it's even a slightly different angle than what we've been talking about. Um, Wilkins' background is sort of a mixed bag. She talks about bouncing around a variety of churches, uh, sounds like largely within the evangelical spectrum, um, but just a lot of different churches where she heard a, a wide variety of, of preaching, uh, and as a result, was concerned because she she heard people uh, speaking very confidently uh, about what the Bible taught, uh, but they were disagreeing with one another. And she realized that she didn't really know what the Bible taught, and she wasn't really sure what to do about that. So actually, in a woman's Bible study, uh, she is, uh, in her own words, given a spoon with which to move the mountain of her ignorance. So she, she quotes the Chinese proverb that says, how do you move a mountain one spoonful at a time? Uh, and so she says, uh, for her, this method of Bible study that, that she explains in her book uh, is the spoon that she was given uh, in order to move this mountain. Uh, and I just, I really loved this metaphor. Um, I think it, it really uh, immediately evokes this idea of patience and faithful determination and maybe not seeing a lot of progress and a lifetime task and, and all of those things that are, I think, true of really uh, coming to know Scripture um, in, in, a, in a full sort of way. Uh, and her self-stated mission is to then put spoons into the hands of as many other women as possible. So I just thought that was a very moving and striking uh, image to start off the book with. Um, Actually, in her opening chapter, she, she then immediately moves to another image that I think, uh, if maybe not quite as moving, is still pretty striking and, and pretty amusing anyway. Uh, she talks about her obsession with rumba tights, uh, which I guess is the name of the tights that had ruffles uh, uh, on the bum. Um, I was never much into frills as a kid, but apparently that's, that's what those are called. And she says that she used to wear hers backwards so she could see the ruffles and that that tended to mess with the way they fit and even maybe mess with some coverage issues. And so she had them on backwards and she needed to fix that. And so with that image in mind, she talks about ways that we uh, get Bible study backward, uh, that we need to sort of correct and, and put it on correctly. Um, and the, the two big uh, points that she focuses on um, uh, are that we need to see the Bible first and foremost as a book about God. 
God, uh, rather than coming to the word and saying, well, what does it say about me? What should I do? How should I act? Um, what do I do in this situation? Instead of asking questions about ourselves and having that self-focus, we go first and say, what is God telling me about himself? Uh, this is a book about him. The sum total of scripture is supposed to be this message for humanity about God, what he wants us to know. Let's focus on that first. Uh, with the idea that you do get to the application, it does tell you things about yourself, but you start with what does it say about God. Uh, so I really appreciated that. That was her first uh, way that we get things backward. Um, and I think uh, this would really help a lot of women's Bible studies to have this this focus because it would help us not to get bogged down in some of the sort of self-help uh, mentality that can, that can permeate some of the curricula. Um, the second backward approach that Jen uh, Wilkin talks about is um, letting our hearts lead our minds when we study. So she advocates for a mind-led study where you understand the word in order to love God more. So um, the idea is the more you understand, the more you will love him. Uh, and so this knowing um, uh, leads to and, in fact, uh, improves and increases the love, um, which I thought was a really... Um, a helpful and necessary reminder. Uh, I think women are often viewed as being emotional, and there are reasons for that. Uh, and I appreciated the reminder that we are encouraged to know God with our minds, um, and that it's very helpful to do that and understand what the Bible says and what it means before we start asking how we feel about it. Um, uh, and I was thinking actually about this just in, in my own life, um, how I have studied things more and grown to love them more, um, whether it was, you know, in, in an academic context or just in hobbies. And, and it occurred to me that, that you ladies as, um, uh, as academics, particularly in the literary fields, uh, would potentially be able to speak to this. Um, did you find that uh, increasing your knowledge of your subject matter enabled you to love and appreciate it more? Uh, and was there a downside if you tried to uh, love what you did not know? I guess, is there is there a preference? And would you agree with um, Wilkins' admonition to start with the mind and let the heart follow? Or any other uh, thoughts that you had on Wilkins' book in particular? Yeah, as a as a literary scholar, I'm definitely really drawn to um, the the kind of metric that she lays out. Um, she she talks about um, her her vision of reading the Bible is actually really close to the way that I teach students to read literature, um, which felt both kind of um, exciting and also intimidating to me because I I felt like well if I do this, like, will it just be like work? Will it be like, I'm, I'm extending my job, um, to, to the way that I worship and, and maybe it'll, it'll change. I, maybe that won't be as, won't be as interesting or won't be as engaging. I'm not sure. Um, but definitely in terms of like my professional study, um, does knowing more angles about something make me love it more? Sure. Um, I'm, I mean, I, I first decided sort of in my heart to become a Shakespearean when I was a teenager um, because it was pretty and flowery and, and why don't people talk like that anymore? And it's so romantic, um, which is such a surface level view of what the Renaissance is and what the poetry is. Um, and, and as I've, as I've grown older, it's about so much more than that. I mean, it's about, um, 
It's about those big universals and about things that transcend time and place, sure. But it's also about a really cool time and place. Um, Learning more about that uh, kind of microcosmic idea of the Renaissance, um, the rule of Elizabeth, and and what uh, global empiric London was like, all of these things have made me look beyond Shakespeare as flowery and romantic and, uh, and turned it into something else, something deeper that I love um, on a different level. So yes, I, I certainly think that that is true for my academic experience. And I think for me, it's almost, I've also seen it work the opposite way so that I know, you know, the question, Alexis, your question was about does knowing more make you love it more? I also think that um, when I was reading Wilkins' book and she's talking about to to love God, you have to know him. So you have to go to it with your mind first. It, it also reminded me of um, a weird experience that I, or not a weird experience, but an experience that I had with Milton's Paradise Lost because I kind of spent my, uh, my undergrad years and the beginning of my graduate t- career continually kind of evading Paradise Lost. It would always be assigned to me to read. I would always read bits of it or I might just look at it a little bit, just enough to get by, you know, because it was never a whole class on Milton. And so I could kind of skate by because for whatever reason, I thought that I wouldn't enjoy it. I didn't want to spend time on Paradise Lost. Well, fast forward to my comprehensive exams preparation in my PhD work, and I now have to read all of Paradise Lost because I know that I need to know it inside and out for my comprehensive exams. And to my shock and surprise in bringing my mind to the task, even though I thought that I may or may not connect with the text, as I read more and more and, and annotated my text and really got into it, I realized, oh, wait, I absolutely love Paradise Lost. I had no idea. And it made me sad for all the time that I had spent trying to evade this text to realize how much that I loved it. And I, and I would, in reading Wilkins' book, I kept thinking, you know, that I, I was feeling a lot of guilt about, you know, why haven't I brought to bear the the techniques that I use when I look at my work for graduate school, when I teach my students how to interpret literature, you know, if I annotate everything I read for, you know, my dissertation, why am I not doing that with my Bible? Why am I not applying those same scholarly techniques? I should be. And, you know, so as I'm kind of moving forward and I'm reading her method and I'm, I'm you know, thinking this way of studying the Bible, I'm what I'm hoping will happen is that if I begin to to apply rather than feeling bad that I don't always want to read certain books of the Bible. Maybe if I apply my mind to the task in the way that she talks about, then, you know, at least according to Jen Wilkin, as time goes by, knowing the text more will lead me to love both the text and to love God more in theory. And I hope that that is going to be the reality moving forward. So yeah, it's a really, really interesting, I think, and a, and a hugely important point that you can't love with your heart if you don't know it with your mind. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, anything else, um, about the Wilkin book, Alexis, that you wanted to bring out before we kind of wrap things up? Um, just, I mean, there's a, there's a lot more there than what we're able to, to discuss today. She goes into much more detail about the process, um, her particular recommended approach. Uh, it's going to, got a nice alliterative pattern for you to remember. Um, so it's definitely worth picking up. Um, and, uh, it's 150 pages, so it's a quick read, um, in that it's not hard to digest, but it's, it's not a quick read in that it is, uh, certainly to be challenging to implement, and I hope, uh, as you do, that uh, that I will do so, and will do so to good effect. Thanks so much. Um, and the for the final section tonight, uh, as always, we're going to be passing on, and we're going to each recommend something 
that we feel like speaks to the, the idea of women's Bible study or um, something that listeners might enjoy for further uh, interaction with the topic. So um, we'll just kind of go around and each of us will give a little bit of a recommendation. We'll start with Victoria and then go to Alexis, then me. Okay, so my recommendation is a, a little less academic than maybe recommendations usually are. Um, I'm not talking about a book or an article today. Instead, I'm going to recommend um, a song and an album. Um, I was was thinking actually today um, while I was riding the bus home and, and prepping for this episode, reading a couple more chapters of the Wilkin book, um, my iPod was on shuffle and a song came on by a Christian singer-songwriter uh Ben Rector from his 2013 album, The Walking In Between. The song is called If You Can Hear Me. And uh, my favorite line in the song um, reads this way. Sometimes the devil sounds a lot like Jesus telling me I'm not enough. And I, I was sort of thinking through prepping for this episode and thinking through what Wilkins says about um, about getting the Bible on backwards like that uh, the anecdote with the tights that Alexis mentioned and the idea that one of the ways we get the Bible on backwards is that realize, uh, thinking that it's about us and about how we feel, how we're performing and not about God. So, um, hearing that song and hearing the line, uh, sometimes the devil sounds a lot like Jesus telling me I'm not enough, um, really just kind of resonated with, um, the thoughts I've been having about this episode. So if you're into music of the singer songwriter variety, or if you're looking for, um, a, a new record with some interesting, uh, Christian themes, check out Ben Rector's, uh, album, The Walking In Between, and especially the song, If You Can Hear Me. Thanks. Uh, Alexis? Um, yeah, I actually am also not recommending a book or an article. Um, rather, my recommendation is for those who might be interested in trying out Jen Wilkins' approach, but who are overwhelmed by the idea of trying to do all of this alone. Um, so I'm actually going to recommend a particular Bible study, and I don't mean a book, I mean an actual study that you go to. It's called Bible Study Fellowship, and it's an interdenominational group. I think it was originally found by a, a woman uh, who had been a missionary to China uh, and was wanting to learn about the Bible. Um, so it's very similar to, to Wilkins' method. They meet in, in metropolis all over the country and even across the world, um, and it doesn't even have to be a big metropolitan area. I know there's one, uh, at least a couple down in Springs, Missouri. So there's a decent chance there's one near you. Uh, you can go to them, and um, you, you are assigned a passage of Scripture to read um, commentaries for the first um, you discuss with other and then you sit under a lecture and receive um, a packet of notes, all of which is, is generated by BSF. And you have a local speaker, so it's not like a pine or anything. It's uh, study has a lecturer um, who is assigned, who, who does the work. Um, and so it is a way to act and try out uh, Jen Wilkins' method, um, even if you don't have um, the time or are just the prospect of trying to do it all on your own. Um, so I, I think that that's an um, option. If for some reason there isn't one in your community or you can't go uh, to it, Jen Wilkin actually leads a very similar study uh, that's also in 
interdenominational. Uh, it's based out of the Flower Mound Women's Bible Study. Um, her uh, materials are available online on her blog. Her lectures are available as podcasts, and then there are workbooks that you can download. Uh, the Bible Study Fellowship materials, they're very protective of them, and I don't think you can get them unless you actually join and attend a group. I mean, I think if you miss too many meetings, you get kicked out. I mean, they're pretty serious about it. Uh, so if you uh, aren't able to do that but still want something similar, Jen Wilkin has made her materials available. And so you could either do them on your own or you could get a group of women together, work through the workbooks, listen to her lectures, and, and do this study in a group context with someone else sort of having done some of the legwork uh, of the um, the the research and things like that that can be a little overwhelming if you're just starting out. But those are my recommendations. Thank you so much. And um, my recommendation tonight, not to make the end of this podcast, the Jen Wilkin Hour, but it is a little bit because my recommendation tonight actually is an article by Jen Wilkin from 2013. And it uh, it's called Pastors Need Women Teachers and Vice Versa and written for the Gospel Coalition. So um, definitely written for a complementarian format. But I really, really enjoyed this article because she points out that there's very little disagreement among Christians that women can and should teach women per Titus 2. But um, what what she points out is that um, women, even with the gift of teaching, don't tend to flourish unless pastors properly value, words, properly value, cultivate, and employ the gift of women teachers. And it's a, it's a pretty, pretty quick read. Um, it's a fantastic article, and she makes a lot of great points about why pastors need teachers, because they have um, perspectives that the pastor just can't bring. I think she... Um, brings up a great talking about she talks about how a lot of times pastors might think that oh well i know what's going on with the women in my church because my wife tells me but she kind of gently but i think very effectively that a lot of times women tend to present their best selves to ministry wives rather than letting all of the ugly hang out and really being a little bit more authentic because maybe it feels embarrassing um to get that personal with a, a pastor's wife because a lot of times they have more of a public persona. And so she makes some really great um, great points about why uh, male pastors need women teachers, but also why women teachers need support and affirmation um, and also the sharpening or the uh, the discipleship of their pastors. Um, so I, it was a really, really great article, and we'll, we'll have it linked as well. And um, so just to finish up, thank you so much, listeners, um, for listening in on our discussion of women's Bible study and, uh, and to the Christian feminist podcast in general, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or if you have reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at Christian feminist podcast at gmail.com to get the show notes for this episode and other episodes. You can check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian feminist podcast is a member of the Christian humanist radio network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison and Zach Schmidt is our intern. For Victoria Farmer and Alexis Neal, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we'll talk about Susanna Wesley. And until then, in essentials unity and non-liberty and in all things love.